The news continues. I want to hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura? Anderson, thank you. That song is stuck in all of our heads now. All week long, we're all going to be singing it. Have a great weekend with that earworm now. I appreciate it. You too. And I am Laura Coates, and welcome to CNN Tonight. You know what? Today's news could be filed under the category of, well, well, well. That's exactly what you've probably been thinking as you heard the day's news unfold. First, when Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, a far-right fringe militia group, and another defendant, Edward Vallejo, pleaded not guilty to one of the most serious charges we have on our books, seditious conspiracy. Now, you know these men are two of the 11 suspects accused of plotting to basically try to use force to stop Congress from carrying out the job of certifying the presidential election. You know, the thing we all assume will happen after a free and fair election. And that same thing that's part of a peaceful transition of power. The kind of thing that stops us from being a dictatorship when someone says, you know what, no, I'd rather stay right here. The reason the charges are so serious? Well, because the stakes are too high not to be. And believe me, I know from experience that charges alone aren't going to convince a jury. Proving your burden is certainly no cakewalk. Why? Well, for the same reason I just said, that the stakes are too high. And it remains to be seen, frankly, of whether the government can actually meet its burden of proof on these charges. But boy, I tell you, evidence like this little tidbit right here, if it gets in, well, let's just say it will help their case. You know, on, on November 10th, after the election was called for Biden... Rhodes, he was bragging about how men positioned outside, he had them outside of Washington, D.C., prepared to engage in violence on Trump's command. We have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option in case they attempt to remove the president illegally. We will step in and stop it. Be inside D.C. We'll also be on the outside of D.C. armed, prepared to go in if the president calls us. Nuclear option. Hmm. What did I tell you? The meme, the theme was today? Well, well, well. Because recall that just last night when I was speaking with Rhodes' attorney, who is his counsel before the committee, well, he said they were just there for protection, you know, to just walk people through and guide them. You know, no nefarious intent. Well, well, well. But it doesn't stop there, because speaking of potentially damning evidence, well, enter Congressman Kevin McCarthy. There's some pretty interesting audio that's just resurfaced that further proves why the January 6th committee wants the House Minority Leader to voluntarily testify, a request that we know he repeatedly has refused to comply with. Yesterday, he seemed pretty emboldened. And today, looking a little bit more like a cat that ate the canary. So allow me to paint the picture this Friday evening because here he is yesterday feigning amnesia about a conversation that he had with Trump five days after an attack on the Capitol. Did you tell House Republicans on a January 11th phone call that President Trump told you he agreed that he bore some responsibility for January 6th, as Chairman Thompson's letter indicates? I'm not sure what call you're talking about. Really? Now, when that kind of thing would happen in my courtroom, well, this is the moment that we would show, let's call it a receipt. So receipt number one, America, 
and this is close to my heart as a radio talk show host myself, I admit, it's a radio interview that he did the day after the January 11th, 2021 phone call with Trump. That's January 12th for those keeping score and said himself that Trump took partial blame for the insurrection. I say he has responsibility. He told me personally that he does have some responsibility. I think a lot of people do. Now, I'm going to admit that I am skeptical about Trump being contrite. I mean, do you recall him apologizing? Ever? Me either. Which is exactly the reason why I find it odd that you wouldn't remember something like that, particularly an event that followed an attack on the Capitol. So... My question is, and I'm sure yours is as well, what exactly did he say? I want the words, and the committee does as well. And I also want to mention that point about a lot of people bearing responsibility. Well, who, pray tell, are you talking about? These might be things that a committee would want to know, just like you. And receipt number two. This was the GOP leader on the day of the impeachment vote in the House. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. So not only did he say that Trump bore responsibility, he said publicly the day before that Trump admitted that he bore some of that responsibility. Just try try to wrap your head around that. But wait, as they say, there's more. Receipt number three. Here's another portion of that radio interview from a week after the insurrection that CNN's K-File team dug up. Look, I spoke to the president during the riot. I was the first person to call him. I told him to go on national TV, tell these people to stop it. He said he didn't know what was happening. Went to the news then to work through that. You were the first person to call Trump on January 6th to tell him about an attack? And you urged him to call off the mob? What? So Trump wasn't watching the news before you called him? You, you alerted him and notified what was happening on the screen? Okay. That sounds hard to believe, right? But there's certainly a lot there for the House Select Committee to ask you about. So I wonder, why did you say this yesterday? My conversation was very short. Advising the president of what was happening here. There is nothing that I can provide the January 6th committee for legislation of them moving forward. First, note the pregnant pauses, right? I spoke to him. Pause. Nothing I could actually provide to the committee. I want what's actually right here. This part. The pregnant pause part. Because does that sound like a man who has nothing to offer the committee? Who, by the way, shouldn't they be in the position to let you know what they actually want to hear about? I know that's how investigations work. You don't say, you know, actually, officer, I don't think I have anything to tell you. I'll I'll let you know. I'll let you know. The self-proclaimed first person to call the then president after the attack broke out? Trump later admitted he had a role in it or bore some sort of responsibility? That's a lot to digest on a Friday or any day. So I want to just do a little recap to run through this timeline of all of this so we're all on the same page. 
following along this long, like CVS size receipt at this point that keeps going and going and going. So first, McCarthy claims that he spoke to Trump as the attack was unfolding on January 6th. Okay. He claims he was the first person to call him, to tell him to call off the mob. Oh, and by the way, Trump had no idea perhaps that it was actually happening. Then five days later on January 11th, McCarthy, he spoke to Trump again and said that Trump admitted to him that he bore some blame. And then two days later, January 13th, the day I might add of the impeachment vote for Trump's alleged incitement of the very thing that McCarthy says he said he admitted to bearing some blame or responsibility for, McCarthy said point blank that Trump bears responsibility and should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. And he also said that Congress should form a commission to investigate. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and think that it's probably safe to say that after all of that, looking through those receipts, McCarthy was probably in the doghouse with Trump. And whatever bromance politically existed, he was probably on the couch. So after that, zoom ahead two weeks to January 28th, after Trump was then gone from office. The House GOP leader then flies down, there they are, flies down to Mar-a-Lago to have a little chit-chat. And voila, his whole position on January 6th noticeably shifts after that. Now, I just want you to fast forward to the day before yesterday. That's Wednesday on this Friday night, when he asked to voluntarily provide information, when he was asked to voluntarily provide information to the panel. And what did he say? Nope. So the question is, what are they going to do about it with all these receipts and questions still lingering and skepticism, frankly, at the forefront of a non-amnesiaed mind? Let's put the question to a January 6th committee member, Congressman Pete Aguilar, vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus. Thank you for being here, Congressman. It's nice to see you on this Friday evening. Good to see you, Laura. Now, I've just provided some receipts and context for the viewing audience who is following along, thinking about all the moments and head-scratching things. And I just wonder, given all of this, the committee has asked Kevin McCarthy to voluntarily provide information. And I'm just wondering, why is this courtesy being extended? Is it because he's a colleague? I would probably assume so. But is there another strategy or reason as to why not just going to the subpoena and then still handling it in a professional way? Well, as you mentioned, look, we just want to get to the truth. And we think that this is, uh, we, we think that our colleagues who take the same oath to the Constitution that we do, we think that they would want to help us get to the truth on why mob rioters, Kevin McCarthy's own words, entered into the Capitol and why the president just stood there in his study, public reporting indicates, watching TV while Kevin McCarthy and who knows who else called him. Those are questions that we want answered. And it's important that the public knows those. Why didn't the president, the then president, walk 25 feet to the press room to tell those folks not to be at the Capitol? Those are important questions, and what we are asking is any member of Congress, including Leader McCarthy, including someone who says that they're a leader, should want to give us that information. They should want to protect the Capitol building and the Constitution. 
I, I understand that, and I agree. I mean, that's one of the probably the incredulous parts for so many Americans watching when you see such resistance from members of Congress. I mean, I was not in the Capitol that day. M many Americans, most Americans were not there, and yet we felt the personal affront of the Citadel being attacked nonetheless. So we're all scratching our heads as to why. And I get that you want to attract more bees with honey, but given the gravitas, given the need to get those answers, why not just draw a straight line from A to B and say, all right, we tried now to ask you, you don't want to do it. Is the next step then to actually subpoena? Because, you know, unfortunately, there's a sort of Damocles over your head with the potential for the subpoena power not being effective in the long run if you're not in the majority any longer. Well, Chairman Thompson has said that we're not taking any tools uh, out of the out of the tool belt. We're not taking them off the table yet. Um, so uh, we will continue to have discussions. We will weigh the the options and the equities of the decisions that we want to make. Uh, if our colleagues choose not to participate, uh, that's something that we'll have to to weigh and consider moving forward. Um, but I will just say broadly, look for every. Kevin McCarthy or, or, or Scott Perry or these individuals who aren't talking to us, there are dozens of individuals who are. Uh, we've had almost 400 interviews so far. We continue uh, to piece this puzzle together and to make significant investigative progress. That's really good to hear and reassuring because the American public does deserve the transparency. And of course, members of Congress should obviously um, endeavor to provide that. You know, part of the people who have cooperated, and I'm glad to think about the voluntary compliance, but of those members who have chosen not to, it's notable that those three congressmen, I'm talking about, you know, Perry and Jordan and McCarthy, they haven't given you a privileged base reason really as to why. Just talking about the closest you can get is the idea of this request violates core constitutional principles. What do you make of that excuse? Is it pretextual? Is it essentially fishing and just hoping that you will run out the clock? Uh, it's just it's just political. When you think of the the cast of characters that we're that we're talking to here, uh, you know these are these are folks who are going to do the president's the former president's bidding, and so uh, I don't think we're surprised by it. Um, you know we're hopeful that they would be bound uh, to the Constitution and to the rule of law and to the truth, uh, and to understand that this was uh, a legitimate. A select committee that was stood up in Congress, just like other select committees in Congress have. Um, but uh, if they choose to go down that path, uh, we, will, uh, we, will, we will deal with it. Uh, we have other tools uh, that we can use, and so we will weigh those equities and move forward. Well, I hope that toolbox is as transparent because talking about hope, I guess the American people, when it comes to democracy, keep hope alive. Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you know, there are two simultaneous investigations. We're talking about the one on the congressional side. They're trying to get to the bottom of who may be, well, at the top of this alleged seditious conspiracy. This is the congressional one we talked to Congressman Aguilar about, you all know very well, and the criminal side. So let's take it to someone who can help analyze where both are headed, a former acting assistant attorney general who now represents the January 6th committee in a suit brought by Trump. That's up next. So we've all seen the video of last January 6th. You might think, God, I can't imagine having this happen, and it really did. But when you read the words of the people who are now charged with seditious conspiracy, you now see where the investigation might be heading next. Like when they say, quote, we have been issued a call to action for D.C., 
are when one of the few names missing in the DOJ documents is that of an unknown operation leader. Well, at this point, the key question is, like it so often is, exactly who ordered the code red? I can't help myself by bringing that in. And we're all going to be better for hearing from the Georgetown law professor, Mary McCord, who we should mention is representing the House Select Committee in the lawsuit over the former president's claim of executive privilege. We work together at the Department of Justice as well. It's good to see you, Mary. How are you? Good to see you as well. Good to see you, Laura. You know, it's unfortunate to think that we're here right now because in the greater picture of things, and I know we won't talk about the specifics of the case you're representing and talking about these issues, but in the grand scheme of things, what does it tell you, Mary, to know that seditious conspiracy is the next direction? I mean, these are kind of analogous to cases where you've got the minions carrying things out, maybe drug pushers, and then you've got the kingpins who are actually directing traffic. Is that where we're going? Well, I think, you know, ever since January 6th, uh, I have been wondering whether this is a charge that would be returned because it seems to fit so completely with the actions that we saw and the preparation and the organization and the conspiracy to commit this attack on the Capitol in order to prevent and delay the counting of the Electoral College votes. So I I think what this shows is it takes time to build that case, just as the Attorney General said last week, uh, and just as you and I know from our previous experience as prosecutors, you do start with the the most readily provable cases, the people on the ground who are on videos uh, you know, committing the attack. And then you work from your way from there and, and investigators pull evidence. They pull phone records. They pull uh, digital media. They see where the connections are. And here, of course, the speaking indictment shows us the many, many communications organizing specific logistical details about the attack. Um, and, you know, it takes a while to build that, but the department has now built that case. You know, you mentioned the idea of that concept of low-hanging fruit, right? And part of the reason of that is, I'm sure, of concern of looking around in a case like this, charges like this, not brought very often, and frankly, with good cause, we're comforted that this is not a readily available or widely used thing because it would require conspiracy and sedition charges to be filed. But the idea here of trying to build that case, I wonder if you can reflect, Mary, on what you think the considerations were. Is it about, of course, there was a case a few years ago out of Michigan where the charges were not able to stick because the evidence was about conversations. They thought the First Amendment applied. I'm talking out of Michigan. Is the concern about, look, if it didn't stick there, even if we've got the low-hanging fruit, we're going to have to go to the root and have enough substantive tree trunk to really make this stick? Yeah, so the department, you know, will not bring a case unless it believes it has admissible evidence enough to prove it's every element of a charge beyond a reasonable doubt. And in cases of seditious conspiracy, the department proceeds with caution because the very nature of the crime necessarily means you're going to be relying on communications uh, uh, to determine whether a conspiracy existed. And there is an inherently political nature to the charge of seditious conspiracy which means that there will sometimes be a First Amendment defense. And in that Michigan case you're talking about from back in 2010 that involved uh, the Hutari militia, the judge there determined that this was really just um, uh, braggadocio, really just the the members of that uh, alleged conspiracy just, you know, t- 
talking about their goals and their ideologies, but not she, the judge was not convinced that they really intended to carry out their attacks. What's very different about this case is they did carry out the attacks, right? We don't have an inchoate crime, which is a crime that never got past that planning stage. Conspiracy exists as a charge so that the government can, when it finds out about it, thwart an attack before it happens and still have a criminal charge of conspiracy. But here, we don't have to wonder whether this was just fantasy, whether this was just braggadocio. They actually committed that attack, and we see that on the video. Now, not every person charged was on that video, but their communications show the planning, the logistical details, down to things you were talking about at the top of the hour, where the guns would be stored just outside of Washington, D.C., with a quick quick reaction force that could be uh, transported into the city quickly, including uh, uh, in one of the allegations by boat uh, right. as needed. And, um, you know, on and on and on details about where to meet and who would be where and who would be carrying what, where they would be staying. That's not fantasy. That That, that is detailed planning. And then, of course, we can all see with our own eyes on videos. It, it then took place. We absolutely can. And their own words have been used as you talk about, Mary, and the idea of, the idea of you mentioned, mentioned the inherently political nature, not to suggest, of course, that this is a partisan endeavor, but just the idea of having to overcome the hurdles of the perception of this. And you have, as you methodically laid out there, think of all the things that are showing and demonstrating. It wasn't just ch- talk. It wasn't just chest beating. We saw it with our own eyes over a period of hours. Mary McCord, thank you for your time. Nice talking to you. Nice being here, Laura. Thank you. You know, talking about braggadocious or maybe a little bit of chest beating, the world's number one men's tennis player, Novak Djokovic, well, he's been detained again tonight as he awaits his fate. So will he play in the Australian Open on Monday or he's going to get booted out of Australia before the weekend is even out? Patrick McMackenroe is here to look at tonight's developments and the tennis's world reaction to this extraordinary legal saga unfolding. That's next. So as you know, tennis fans around the entire world are anxiously waiting to see whether Novak Djokovic will be playing in the Australian Open after all. But the 34-year-old tennis star likely has his focus, well, on a different court right now. Djokovic is being detained by Australian authorities as he awaits a hearing. You've got immigration officials who've revoked his visa for now a second time because he hasn't gotten the COVID vaccine, which is required, apparently, to play. And he also is accused of providing false information on his visa. He's appealing the decision, and a hearing is expected tomorrow. But if his appeal fails, he could be deported and even barred from even entering the country again. Let's discuss now with a new member of the CNN family, CNN contributor and former professional tennis player, Patrick McEnroe. Good to see you, Patrick. I'm glad especially to have you on a night like this. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for mentioning that. I'm very proud to be uh, joining the team. So thank you and thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here because you can help us especially break down not only what's happening, but what the reaction really is to this. Because we're days away from the Australian Open. It's no secret he is the number one men's tennis player. But I'm wondering, with all of the hoopla, all the conversation, he hasn't been practicing either. He's waiting to have a hearing. What is the reaction from other tennis players who are already in the Open and did follow the rules? 
Well, quite frankly, Laura, the rest of the players are getting a little bit fed up with this whole Novak saga that's continued for the last week. They've had enough. We've heard from multiple players over the last couple of days that they want to get on with the tournament. Novak made his decision, as Rafael Nadal said, to not get vaccinated a long time ago. And he knew that this was coming down the road, meaning these rules in Australia. And so he's suffering the consequences now. But you said something, Laura, that was very interesting. And the, the two points you made as to why potentially the government's trying to deport him. But here's the problem with the case. And I know you're a lawyer, so you could probably help me out with this, that they're not actually arguing the government that this is the reason they're trying to deport him from the country. And I'm going to read this note because I want to make sure I get it right since I'm talking to the lawyer. The government is essentially going to argue in court that Djokovic should be deported from Australia because, and I'm quoting now, he may risk lives and civil order by eroding regard for COVID rules and vaccinations. Now, I'm sorry, Laura, I'm not a lawyer, but are you kidding me? That's the reason they want to deport him. They have multiple other avenues they could go down. And all Novak Djokovic has to do, from my understanding of the legality of this situation, is, is, is present that he has a serious case to be tried and that he could get a temporary injunction. That's all he needs. And it sounds pretty likely that he's going to get that. And that means he's going to be able to stay and he's going to be able to play in the Australian Open. What's interesting about that, and I don't pretend to be a barrister or from the Australian courts and lawyers, but I can tell you from a perspective of what we're looking at, it sounds like the argument is that they're trying to stop this perception of an anti-vaxxer. And of course, there's going to be the pushback from that. And if you have a legitimate reason, as you articulate, if there's a legitimate reason that somebody has not followed the rules that were set for everyone else, you know what I mean? You have to actually do what you're supposed to do. If you offer this sort of public policy-based argument, then you're going to have the perception in the public that you are trying to push a particular agenda. But I will say that agenda and where we are right now, the idea of not wanting to risk people's lives or perpetuate, say, infection, as opposed to the viewpoint, I mean, that is actually a legitimate basis by which they've held every other person going to Australia. And so the question for me and for the public oftentimes is, is it right that this athlete in particular, even though he's a star, maybe because he's a star, is getting this sort of separate treatment and consideration, or is it in line with what other players did? There was a woman who had to leave Australia who's supposed to play in the Open, right? And she didn't get the same attention and consideration. No, she certainly did not. Her name was Renata Vorakova from the Czech Republic. She's mm -hmm. already back in her home country. In fact, four police officers came to her hotel when she was taking a swim in the pool and escorted her essentially out of the country. She didn't have the wherewithal to hire the legal team that Novak Djokovic has. And by the way, Laura, I'll point out to you and to the viewers out there, if Novak Djokovic actually plays in the Australian Open, he'll be the only unvaccinated player in either draw male or female. So that's got the whole Australian public in an uproar. But it's become just a political firestorm in Australia. There's so much going on behind the scenes politically that's playing into this decision. But from a legal standpoint, it sounds like Novak Djokovic is going to be able to get that temporary injunction, get out of one court and get onto the other court, which he's dominated for many years. Something tells me that in an otherwise and normally silent tennis match, you might hear a lot of boos if he actually does take that position. But, you know, I got to tell you, Patrick, you can't very well complain about the circus if you're a seal with a bouncing ball on your nose. He's brought a lot of this on himself. In fact, everything about this notion, as Nadal has talked about. Patrick McEnroe, nice talking to you. I knew you'd be the right person to have the conversation with.
Thanks a lot, Laura. Well, the question again, talking about the rules and who has to follow them and who doesn't. Forget tennis for a second. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. Because the question now is, who gets to ignore the United States Supreme Court? Well, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, seems to think that, well, he can. How he's vowing to fight the one smaller part of the Biden vaccine mandate the justices did keep in place and why hospitals could suffer. That's next. So two of America's most high-profile governors are now going, well, head-to-head after Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis made this declaration in his State of the State address. Together, we have made Florida the freest state in these United States. Florida has become the escape hatch for those chafing under authoritarian, arbitrary, and seemingly never-ending mandates and restrictions. It prompted California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, to respond. This in an interview with Yahoo News, he said, is DeSantis referring reflexively to himself? With respect, we'd have 40,000 more Californians dead if we took his approach, arguably even more with the density and population of this state. And it wouldn't have been, would have been much, much worse in Florida if they didn't get the blowback from all the local folks. And just the way that has fought mask and vaccine mandates by threatening businesses and cities and schools with fines, he's doing the same now, this time with hospitals. Even though, as you recall, the Supreme Court just yesterday ruled that President Biden's vaccine mandate on some healthcare workers could actually stand. Joining me now to discuss is fellow legal mind, Jeffrey Tubin. Jeff, good to talk to you tonight. I got to ask you this question. Um, I think the concern perhaps was with Texas that people would look at the idea of ignoring Supreme Court precedent and say that's going to be confined to that particular space. This is the different type of blueprint that we didn't expect, or did you? Well, good evening, Counselor. Um, it is, um, it, it, well, it remains to be seen somewhat what uh, exactly DeSantis plans, plans to do. I noticed something interesting about what his press secretary said today. The press secretary said, I will not, or we, Florida, will not enforce the, the ban that, the, that uh, Biden has, has insisted on in, in, uh, on hospitals. Enforce was an interesting word because Florida doesn't have to enforce that. That's a rule for Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare and Medicaid are saying, we will not pay you hospital if you allow people who are unvaccinated to work in your hospital, you know, in dealing with patients. Florida has nothing to do with that. That is, that is a transaction between Florida, between um, the the federal government and the the healthcare providers. So so and, and, I mean Jeff, for that reason, I mean it feels a lot like sort of if you sell someone to get out and they say I wanted to leave anyway. You, you don't really have the power here, right? I mean they they have no ability well, to enforce because the power of the purse is already very very closely held by Congress, Medicare, the ability to do so. So is it just the whole point then, Jeffrey? If if you're saying you know I, I won't enforce it, well you couldn't anyway. It's just bravado. Well, that, that's right. Although the question is, he has, th- they have threatened 
fines on businesses uh, and certain institutions that insist on on mandates uh, internally. And the question is, will they try to find the hospitals that comply with the federal government? That would create a direct conflict. But I think Florida loses in that case because, you know, the, the law seems pretty clear that, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. If the um, if the federal government can insist that if you take their money, you better wear you better you better have a mask mandate. I don't think Florida has any right to interfere with that. I think it's it's the preemption area of the law. It's it's the federal supremacy. So, you know, I think this is a lot of showmanship from DeSantis, but I don't think he can do anything about this. And on those two elements, I mean, the preemption, the supremacy clause, all ways of essentially saying, look, if there's a perception of being caught between a rock and a hard place between the federal government and the state governments, we already win if it's the federal government. We already have the ability to say we trump it in these respects, provided that you have the authority to do so and you do here. So if that's the case, and I, and I do wonder about this, if that's the case, you know, what does this say about them essentially ignoring the Supreme Court ruling, even publicly trying to pretend they can? Because I remember a time, and I guess I'm old enough and well, Jeffrey Tubin, I'm also young enough to remember a time when Supreme Court precedent actually meant you didn't mess with the Supreme Court. But I'm thinking back just months ago when you could thumb your nose yeah, and say, right. oh, I guess Roe v. Wade was optional to follow along. So, I, I mean, this is a case where has the Supreme Court in its own behavior essentially invited people to challenge, at least on a public level, the respect that normally is given to their authority, as they say? Well, I, I I do think you know the 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 court has become such a deeply politicized institution. Uh, I know the justices hate it when we always point out that there are six Republican and three Democratic appointees. But when you look at how often they split on that basis in major cases, uh, interestingly, the 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 Medicare mandate case was not one. You had. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh sided with the Democrats there. But by and large, it is it is a deeply politicized institution in high profile cases. And I think that does tend to affect uh, the 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 uh, it, its reputation. Also, I mean, you know, DeSantis is now running for president. 24 hours a day. And, you know, he's running to win the Fox News primary. And in the Fox News primary, the more you can be against vaccine mandates, the more you can be against testing, the more you can be against masks, um, the more attention you'll get. And, you know, that 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 seems to be how he's playing. As Governor well, Newsom yeah. pointed out, that may be costing people in Florida their lives. But that appears to be a calculus that Fox News and uh, DeSantis seem to be Our worth Meg. taking. I mean, it is worth pointing out, too. I mean, there is an element of richness to hear Governor Newsom talk about people following the protocols when he himself was almost recalled for failing to do so and admitted to such. But let's give someone a clean slate. It's a new year and happy new year to you, Jeffrey Tuvin. To you as well, Counselor. We'll be right back in a second. But I want to say, you know, the battles we see playing out right now, well, they may feel unprecedented, given all of our talk about precedents, but many really aren't so new. That's why we need to take a step back and think about the larger issues that demand action. And I'll make my case next. It's been one heck of a week. 
a week that began with people refusing to attend President Biden's powerful speech on voting rights because they feared it might be an example of a Johnny-come-lately using them as a photo op. We heard the complaints and, well, they registered. And even when voting rights activists found themselves pleasantly surprised by the speech, they still asked what took so long. We heard that same question asked again when it came to the Department of Justice, more than a year after the insurrection and a year to the date of a second presidential impeachment, we saw sedition charges filed against 11 people, including the leader of the Oath Keepers. But the charges, they didn't target a former president or his inner circle, so people still asked, does this mean that there will be equal prosecution of the laws? That question was asked of GOP members in Congress who refused to cooperate with their own colleagues' request for information. And we saw an emerging Republican midterm election campaign platform that seems to prioritize retaliation over legislation. Apparently, tit for tat is the new black. And in a different chamber, we saw Republican Senator Mitch McConnell reduce a call for voting rights to a rant. And that apparently the traditions of the Senate were more important than the expectation of democracy. And we asked, when will the hypocrisy end? And this week, we've heard the continued criticism of the mixed messaging from the CDC and in our COVID fatigue asked incredulously, you mean I've done all that you have required of me and it still feels like I'm sitting here on square one? You've heard the questions. But in a week where people are frustrated at every level about campaign promises not yet realized, let's talk for a second about the people for whom dreams remain deferred. I'm talking about equity. These words are the basis for the American creed. Equality, equity, fairness, decency. Equity is at the core of everything we do in urban and rural communities alike. We have a real chance to deliver real equity across the board. It was a campaign promise. Hell, it's a democratic promise. If you think you're tired of mixed messagings and delayed justice and constitutional hypocrisy, well, just imagine how millions of Americans of color and Americans who comprise the working poor also feel. How about the native and indigenous populations? How about people from Seattle all the way to Appalachia? Now, square one might be a temporary inconvenience for you, but it's the reality for far too many and by no fault of their own. Because long before there was frustration over a delayed voting speech, there's been frustration about waiting in vain to be treated like you count. Long before there were questions about congressional hypocrisy, James Baldwin told you, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Long before there was a question about whether a Senate rule should be upheld, voters had been waiting for the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to be honored, restored, and fortified by the very legislative body that wrote it. And long before there was irritation about the inability to find masks or COVID tests, far too many people have been tested by economic inequality, denied intergenerational wealth, and can't find a way to make ends meet on a shoestring budget that splits every way but solvent. Now, as important as each of our collective complaints have been this weekend, and they are important, I hope we realize the luxury that we have to focus on the big picture issues like 
It's a George Surratt painting and not bother to examine the individual dots, let alone connect them. So listen, you are entitled to be frustrated, but be productive. Be impatient, but be vigilant. Be opinionated, but please stay informed. I rest my case. Hey, thanks for watching. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.